So you've got a full day of practice under your belts. For some of you, I imagine it just went like that. Now for others, maybe a little like walking uphill in a swamp, you know. But here we are. You've remained. I decide to water my garden. As I turn on the hose in the driveway, I look over at my car and decide it needs washing. As I start toward the garage, I notice mail on the, por- on the porch table that I brought up from the mailbox earlier. I decide to go through the mail before I wash the car. I lay my car keys on the table, put the junk mail in the recycling bin under the table, and notice that the bin is full. So I decide to put the bills back on the table and take the recycling out to the curb. But then I think, since I'm going to be near the mailbox when I take out the recycling anyway, I might as well pay the bills first. I take my checkbook off the table and see there's only one check left. My extra checks are in the desk in the study. So I go inside the house to my desk where I find the can of Coke that I've been drinking. I'm going to look for my checks, but first I need to push the Coke aside so that I don't accidentally knock it over. The Coke is getting warm, and I decide to put it in the refrigerator to keep it cold. As I head toward the kitchen with the Coke, a vase of flowers on the counter catches my eye. They need water. I put the Coke on the counter and discover my reading glasses that I've been searching for all morning. I decide I'd better put them back in my desk, but first I'm going to water the flowers. I set the glasses back down on the counter, fill a container with water, and suddenly spot the TV remote. Someone left it on the kitchen table. Does any of this sound familiar? I realize that tonight when we, when we go to watch TV, I'll be looking for the remote, but I won't remember that it's on the kitchen table. So I decide to put it back in the den where it belongs. But first I'll water the flowers. I pour some water in the flowers, but quite a bit spills on the floor. So I set the remote back on the table, get some towels, and wipe up the spill. Then I head down the hall trying to remember what I was planning to do. At the end of the day, the car isn't washed, the bills aren't paid, there's a warm can of Coke sitting on the counter, the flowers don't have enough water, there is still only one check in my checkbook, I can't find the remote, I can't find my glasses, and I don't remember what I did with the car keys. Then when I try to figure out why nothing got done today, I'm really baffled because I know I was busy all darn day and I'm really tired. I realize this is a serious problem and I'll try to get some help for it, but first I'll check my email. (laughs) A little familiarity in there, you think? So... Tonight I want to talk about the role of concentration in practice and in life. The Pali word is samadhi, which is actually a much better description than concentration. More on that later. Here's some words from Ajahn Chah, the Thai forest master. He offers this as a possibility as opposed to what I just read. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. 
all kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come to drink at the pool. And you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So given the parameters of this creation that we are a part of, with all its distractions, all its demands, I mean, it's really common sense that some modicum of gathering the mind, of inner ease, of tranquility, some modicum is essential for happiness. Last week, I learned a new word for this inner ease and tranquility. I have, I have a, a 19-year-old uh, young guy that I, I see from time to time, and he always kind of clues me into what's going on in the culture, new words. I mean, he was the one who turned me on to the Gangnam-style video. Anybody seen that? You know? um, so last week, I said, you know, what are you doing, you know? And he says, I'm chillaxing. Chill accent. He said, yeah, you know, chill and relaxing at the same time. Now, you're not going to find that in the Pali canon, chill accent. <laughs> but whatever terminology you choose to use, stillness, ease, tranquility, relaxation, or chill accent, that, that sensibility of settling stilling the heart-mind. That's the bedrock that a spiritual practice is built on. This tranquility, when it's cultivated, supports a whole cascading of deep understanding, insight. And it supports a fuller opening of the heart, an increasing capacity for love and compassion. And if you give it a little thought, a heart-mind that's inclined to stillness and compassion is more than just a bedrock of practice. It's the bedrock of a sane society, a sane world. We know the human mind knows how to make and create tension conflict. It can also create peace. Now to find peace and tranquility in the world, you've got to find it in yourself. You're the foundational unit of society, the individual. You're part of a family, a community, a neighborhood, a state, a nation, a world. If peace isn't cultivated in you, the chances of peace kind of moving up the line are a little slim. It's not that we don't have to work in all these other areas. But unless this basic unit that we are cultivates peace, it's no wonder we have the world that we have. Now, this, this importance of tranquility is, is highlighted throughout the Buddha's teachings. 
I'll just give one example, the seven factors of enlightenment. The seven factors are the ingredients, uh, so to speak, for awakening. It's like a gourmet dish where you have these very distinct ingredients that support and enhance one another. And they're often conceived of in two main groups. The arousing factors, those are the factors that cultivate an alertness, a wakefulness. And then the the factors that incline the mind and heart toward greater stillness and tranquility, the, the, the stilling factors. So we have alertness and we have calm. These are the aspects of a meditative mind. The capacity to be both vividly alert, clear, awake, and calm, relaxed. So there's three factors in each group, with the seventh factor being our old friend mindfulness. That factor is that, that factor that knows what's happening when it's happening. And that's more of the balancing factor. Briefly, they are, the alertness factors uh, are, are these. Dhamma-vakaya, which is the factor of investigation. Virya, which is the factor of energy. And piti, that's P-I-T-I, which is rapture or joy. And the three settling factors, pasadi, which gets translated as calm, but it's also sometimes translated as ecstasy, which is kind of interesting. And samadhi, which is the gathering, the resting together of really many beautiful mental factors, and I'll get into that in some detail. And upeka, equanimity. That's the balanced capacity uh, to accept the conditions of this life just as they are with some manner of grace and without struggle. And that doesn't mean we don't change what needs to be changed and what we can change. But there's a lot that's out of our control. So this group of settling factors, you'll often see them just grouped together and called tranquility. So these factors, they complement, they interpenetrate one another, and they support awakening. Now, if you can remember to way back this morning, the instructions that I gave, um, kind of inviting a relaxed spaciousness. You know, because a relaxed, spacious heart-mind that's that's contented like that is much more willing to stay where we ask it to stay to gather around a particular object that we choose, and in this case, the breath. Now, the the proximate cause of concentration is happiness of mind. It's a proximate cause of, of concentration, or samadhi, is happiness of mind. Uh, I want to try a little reflection uh, with you, and we'll see if we can illuminate these factors of awakening in a, in a short reflection. So close your eyes, be comfortable. Take a few deep breaths. 
You remember the breath. You've seen it a few times today, felt it. So just settling in, let going, letting go of the future, letting go of the past. And I want you to imagine that instead of approaching the winter solstice, we're right about there for the summer solstice. And imagine yourself in your garden. You've worked it. It's beautiful. It's abundant. There's all kinds of flowers, vegetables. You're standing there. There's some fragrances, different fragrances kind of wafting through. There's a warm breeze. You can feel the sun on your skin. And then you notice in the flowers that they're alive with the hum and movement of honeybees working away. So you get a, you get a little interest, get a little interested. You you become aware of them. Now you're a little interested. Well, what? Let's take a close look. They've got your attention. Investigate. You look a little closer. You kind of lean in, and notice the tiny globules of pollen that are stuck to the bees' legs. They're like little saddlebags on each of their legs as they move from flower to flower. And you look closely, you notice the striped color, a kind of translucent amber and black stripe on these common honeybees, these gentle honeybees. You notice their wings are almost transparent. And on close inspection, They've got this tiny little fur on them. And as you're watching them, you you begin to sense the considerable energy that it takes for the little little ones to take off when they're fully loaded with pollen. They, they, They kind of even wobble in the air when they're fully loaded as they make their way to the next flower. So you're finding yourself totally into this, rapt interest. You're totally present, senses wide open. Your energy's flowing as you pay attention. As you're watching this miracle of creation happen right before your eyes. And as as you watch this and relax into this situation, you do notice this uplifting feeling. There's a sense of awe. The mystery of all this has brought up a sense of awe, of appreciation, joy. You're very awake now. Some nice energy flowing. You're not lost in planning the future or worrying about the past or anything. You're not fantasizing. You're just right there. Senses wide open and connected to this experience in nature. 
And as you rest in the midst of this experience, you start to notice a tranquil feeling that's arisen in your heart, mind, and body. You're just calmly resting in this miracle of nature. And there's a growing sense of tranquility. Being mindful of the bees begets interest. The interest begets a little rising of energy. The energy begets physical and mental happiness, which in turn begets a tranquil, tranquil, peaceful feeling. The mind and heart resting easily on the chosen object, in this case, the honeybees. There has arisen a, what you might call a sweet balance of calm and alertness. And it's all flavored with a friendliness, a compassion, an awe, an appreciation for this creation. So in this simple moment, the ordinary has become extraordinary. Okay, so maybe you got a little feel how some of these factors work together. Factors of awakening are at play together. And I'd like to emphasize play. It's not a grim struggle. You can look at samadhi, the cultivation of samadhi, as a process that goes from gross to subtle. water, and some mud. This is your mind on everyday stress. (laughs) Now, we've got combinations of stresses in here. You got the big ones. Health, relationships, finances. I hope the the top stays on. And then you got the more Minute stressors, the minutiae, like the little rodents that nip at your ankles, kind of. You know, like the person next to you makes too much noise, or they're too slow in the food line, or you don't like the food, you know, or the yogi job you have isn't the one you were hoping for. And so you got these stresses, and then you add to this accumulated agitation, this the agitating stimulation that accumulates on all of us like a waxy film from cable TV, computers, iPads, iPhones, iPods, you know. This, it, it's like a relentless cultural march towards attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I mean, it's like everyone has it to some degree, almost. 
So, but even with this much agitation, all those different kind of stressors, this water will eventually settle and become clear. And we'll just watch it settle over the days, just like your mind, we hope. There's a Tibetan saying, Chomanyak nadang, semacho nadi. And it means water, if you don't stir it, will become clear. The mind, left unaltered, will find its own natural peace. So as we work with the breath, we're finding our own way into the appropriate connection to it. So just bring your left hand out in front of you and grasp it with your right hand really as hard as you can. All right, that's grasping. If you do it long enough, it's going to cause suffering. It's not pleasant. All right, shake out the hand a little bit. Now take your right hand, make a fist, and push it against your left as hard as you can. And that's pushing, of course, and feeling that pressure. That's the kind of tension that we build up in the mind when we're pushing, pushing, striving hard. Okay, shake that out. Now, just present your left hand and take your right hand and just touch into it and then lift it. Touch in again, lift it. Touch it, lift it. Touch it, lift it. If we do that long enough, it becomes tiring. There's no rest in that. And likewise, if we're just, it's like we're, if, and, Imagine you're pulling something. You just pull. You're just pulling, 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 pulling. So in this practice, we don't push, pull, or we don't hover over the breath. Now gently, put out your left hand again and, and gently place your right hand just on it. Not pressing. More of a softening into you might just close your eyes and feel it. It's a, it's a relaxing attention that gently but firmly connects. And notice what, can, can you feel some temperature? Is it warm, cool? What is it like? Is it hard or soft? Smooth or rough? We can become intimate with this. And if you're harsh in any way, the attention is going to bounce right off the breath. You know, that's why we're emphasizing gentleness, emphasizing relaxation, slowing things down. As you practice, it's also important to keep your mind occasionally 
on your aspiration, your intention for practice. Um, But contemplating the intention in a special way. Okay, you come to this retreat. For some of you, your intention might be to cultivate a, you know, a heart-mind that's more tranquil, wise, compassionate. And for others, you might come here just simply to reduce some stress, chillaxin, you know. But whatever your motivation or intention is, that can only manifest in this moment and this moment. You may have this intention, but if it's kind of like this fuzzy in the future, boy, I'm, I really want to be mindful and learn these practices, etc. It only happens right now. And as you sit listening to this talk, just allowing the words to wash over you, some of them make sense, some of them you think might be useful, others not so much. See if you can stay at least intermittently with the breath. Kind of allowing it to happen. You can listen. The breath may be a little bit in the background. So anytime you can bring that intention to the immediacy of the moment, this moment, it has more energy into it. Kind of a little more oomph. And that simple remembrance of your, in, of your intention to be present and that that needs to be exercised right now and that it's not some future far away happening. And sometimes that's all it takes. Oh, this moment, in this moment, this, this half a breath, I can be there for that. So there's uh, five main elements to, of samadhi to a deep, collected, tranquil state. And knowing them, can be, they, can, they can be helpful. Vitaka is the first one, and that's to aim or direct your attention to a particular perception. It's, it's an applied attention. It's a directed movement of the mind. It's an aiming of attention, like when you're hitting a tennis ball or a baseball or you're shining a flashlight in some dark place. It's that precise turning of attention toward your meditation object. And in this week, we're inviting you to use the breath. It's, it's actually striking the bell. It's not just waving around. You know, it's making a connection. It's this. Connection made in terms of the breath. It's that initial finding and connection with the breath. And this is where the will or the effort comes in at that moment. Okay. You know, you make an effort to connect with the breath. You know, the conditions can be all over the lot, unfavorable. You know, maybe you're agitated from all the effort that it took to get here and put everything aside. Or maybe you took a nap today and you wake up and you're all groggy and, you, you know, you're just fuzzy as can be. 
But you make that mindful effort to be with the breath. Vitaka has that wakeful quality. Now the second aspect of samadhi is called vichara. It's like the sister or brother of vitaka. It's the sustaining of the connection that you make. You make the connection and you see if you can sustain that. Vichara stays with the meditation subject. It's a quality of mind that kind of ranges around the subject but stays with it. It's like the reverberation of this bell. See if you can stay with the reverberation when I hit it. That's vichara. Vitaka connects and vichara sustains. So in regards to the breath, Vichara endeavors to, re- to sustain that awareness through the whole cycle, the inhale and the exhale. Just try two breaths. See if your vichara can be with at least the first inhale. Okay. So vichara is holding the attention long enough so that the heart-mind starts to be able to gather itself. So we're practicing. You're choosing to stay with this breath the best that you're able. But why? Not because the experience of the breath is the end-all, be-all to everything. But it's important to know that there's an attitude involved here. There's an attitude of a mature meditator involved here. And that attitude is that practice is its own reward. If you can adopt this attitude, it's it's very empowering. You know, it's like when your meditation is really challenging and and your mind is jumping all over like an over-caffeinated squirrel. Jump, 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 jump. You know what that's like. You know? Or you're irritated, tired, or whatever. If you can reflect on this practice being its own reward, and that practice as its own reward is a worthwhile value, and that you're learning to choose and keep your attention where you place it, that that's a value, It's worthwhile, and you're choosing it, and you're learning how to do that. That's the attitude of a a mature meditator. Now, you can't control how much you learn or how concentrated you, you, you become, but you can control choosing to make the effort. You're choosing that because it has value. So, you summon a little will, a little effort, 
there's a firmness, not tightness. You know, one metaphor I like, it's like, you know, you're on a crowded city street and you're walking a child, a young child along. So you're holding the child's hand. You're not squeezing it. You're just holding it. You're sustaining, making that connection to the child. Then the child will just get all wiggly and try to run this way or that way, and there's traffic. So you just gently guide while sustaining that. You're guiding that child back. Okay, we're going to stay on the sidewalk here. And you're not yanking the child's arm. I mean, that disturbs the, the child's well-being. It's just not an appropriate thing to do. It, you know, and, and when, we, when we think about um, working with the breath, you know, as I mentioned this morning, yanking the mind aggressively back uh, creates tension. You know, whatever tension is accumulating in the planning, worrying, whatever is going on, and we, and we drag it back quickly, it starts to accumulate in the body. The mind, the body, the heart, they get tighter. That's why when you recognize you're in a story, when you finally recognize that, oh, look, I've been all tangled up. I'm just going to release, very simply. Been in that story for who knows how long, but I'm going to release, leave it there. Maybe re-relax, take some breaths, allow the breaths to kind of slide over you, soften the face, shoulders, etc. And then begin again, landing in the breath. When we slow down the process, it's much more conducive to that cultivation of that tranquil, tranquil heart-mind. So Vitaka is the, the initial connection. It aims it. Vichara sustains that connection so that some intimacy can be established, aiming and sustaining. And at the very least, you're cultivating um, patience and persistence as you return again, again, relax, relax. Those are two of the Buddha's uh, ten, ten perfections. I mean, your body's stiff. It's, you know, your mind's all over the place. You recognize, pause, release, re-relax, begin again. If that's all you do, you're growing your capacity for patience and persistence. Those are great qualities in the world. So Vitaka and Vichara, they are the workhorses of samadhi. Everything flows from these. Now, as you may have noticed, maybe some of you that have been practicing for a while, when you're able to connect and sustain that connection for a little while, not some long period of time, there naturally arise this feeling of lightness and pleasure. The mind becomes clearer, brighter, more alert. The body wakes up. It's invigorated. This is piti, 
the third factor of samadhi. Piti gets translated in, in various ways. Rapturous interest, joyful interest, just plain joy, enthusiasm, zest, delight, happiness, bliss. Now, the, this experience of piti, as it starts to come on through the establishment of vitaka and vichara, it can range from a kind of subtle, soft, quiet, sweet internal smile, just very gentle, subtle, to waves of intense pulsating pleasure through the whole body that frankly makes your experience of sexual orgasm seem like nothing. That's the range we're talking about when PT is activated. It's pervasive. It's head to toe. And PT grows naturally just by practicing, practicing, resting your attention on the meditation object. It's the natural joy of a settled mind. The natural joy of a settled mind. Now this delight that's infused with interest supports the ability to sustain attention even longer. When, when PT is active, boy, your motivation for practice is like, wow, it's what you want to do. Now there's more. The fourth factor called sukha. Actually, that's the name of my dog, sukha. Um, it's usually translated as happiness, peace, pleasure, ease, joy, contentment. Now, it differs, differs from PT in certain ways. And some teachers say, oh, you can't really even tell the difference. They arise together. It's impossible. But some say, well, you can tell the difference. And I kind of think you can. Sukha is, is a bit of a refinement of piti, which can be really kind of gross and you know intense. This is a little more, a little more refined. It's quieter, less activated. Most meditators would describe it as, well, oh, it's very gratifying, and it's a, a little smoother than piti. More chilled out, but pleasant, joyful, and just a little tamer, or a lot tamer. So when sukha is strong, everything feels great. There's this kind of pervading okayness. Your phenomenological field is filled with this happiness. And when sukha is strong, you, you might, you know, the bell might ring. Uh, you have no desire to get up. I mean, what could be more satisfying and interesting than this? I mean, what could top it? Some food, tea? Come on, not a chance. Now, as everything starts coming together, the sustained contact. It's all lubricated with this joy, this interest. The mind just becomes very cooperative and stays on the object pretty easily at this point. And that's the fifth factor. It's called ekagata. Attention now is disturbance-free. 
the mind is very still and connects with the object. Pretty much unshakable, unwavering. The mind doesn't wander. Doesn't want to. It's not even tempted. Now, this is a little nuanced, but some of you may be interested in that. It is different than vichara. You know, we talk about vichara being the sustaining of attention. Now, the metaphor that I like that distinguishes between vichara and akagata is this. With vichara, that sustained attention, it's like, well, my favorite flower is a peony. It's a big flower. The bee lands in there, and it's, and it's moving around, roaming over the inside of the flower. Okay? That's vichara. Now, ikagata is like you, you, you dig a hole and you cement and place a post in the ground. It's that powerful. It's different. There's no, there's no wobble or moving around. It, it, ikagata has this feeling of certainty, stability, clarity. At that point, your attention is completely under, undifferentiated from the object. I mean, there's this total union. The sense of boundary between what you might consider self and the object is mostly gone, or completely gone. And it's all very relaxing. So, and as you stay with this, if there are any thoughts at this point, they're just wispy thoughts, no roots to them. They're just floating through. They kind of self-liberate in a moment. And as this one-pointed, bright, clear awareness, which is infused with joy and contentment, as it continues to gather energy, at some point it enters what is classically called jhana, or meditative absorption. Now there's, a, there's this lively, healthy debate of exactly, well, what is jhana? What is this absorption thing? You know? And some teachers will say, well, it's these characters, you know, it's, it's got to be to this level. Um, but my personal feeling is not to worry about uh, whether it's classified. If you have the intention, you have the energy, and you simply devote yourself to practice, deeper states of samadhi are going to arise. And whether teacher X, Y, or Z says, oh, you're having jhana experience or not, really doesn't matter because you're going to benefit. So knowing these five elements of samadhi, vitaka, vichara, piti, sukha, and ekagata, they actually can be helpful. Um, Sometimes when I'm sitting, I'll reflect for a moment on what's happening. Like, how is Vitaka right now? You know, how, how is Vitaka right now? Am I connecting with the breath? Yeah. In this moment. In this moment. And how's Vichara right now? Am I sustaining that connection? Can I make it through an inhale and be connected? Maybe for an entire breath? And sometimes when practice is a little wobbly, I'll invoke those qualities with a little meditative voice. May vitaka and vichara arise and stabilize. I'll say that to myself a few times. 
And it often, nowadays, has the capacity to like, okay, kind of brings things together. May Vitaka and Vichara arise and stabilize. There's a book called The Path to Purification. It's written by Buddha Gosa, a scholar. Uh, It's an exhaustive commentary on the Buddha's suttas, his discourses that he gave over his 45 years of teaching. And it's it's partly a meditation manual, and and it explains in detail many meditation practices. It was written in the early part of the 5th century, which is about 900 years after the Buddha uh, was alive. And in that commentary, Buddha Gosa de- describes samadhi as having 34 wholesome mental factors that arise simultaneously, which include the five that I just mentioned. Now, I'm not going to bore you with all of them, um, but I want you to hear some of them so you get an idea of a sense of how special samadhi is. What are, the, what are the flavors that are, that are brewing there? It's not just concentration. I really haven't found English language to, to come up to what samadhi is. Concentration maybe is the best we can do, but it's, a, it's really narrow. It's like, you think about it, a burglar, a really good cat burglar, somebody who can climb to that second story, get through all the locks, get in there, steal stuff without even waking you up, get out. That person has concentration. I mean, they really got it. But they don't have samadhi. So here's a list. So just, I'll read this to you and just let the words kind of, I'm going to read some of the list. Wash over and see if you can get a a sense of, or a scent of what, what this mental factor might feel like in you. And you'll recognize them. Well, there's energy or effort, which is the the nature of a kind of very smooth endeavoring to get something done, supporting a calm steadfastness. There's a wholesome desire There are such things, wholesome desires. There's faith. It's it's the nature of a firm faith in the practice, in the training. Of course, there's mindfulness, kind of submerging, connecting with the object, not forgetting it. Here's one, there's conscience having conscientious scruples about misconduct. Here's one that doesn't sound so good, but if you, if you think into it, it's okay. Moral shame. It's, it's a little bit of dread about committing any misconduct. It's a slightly different flavor than conscience. There's non-greed. There's a flavor of non-greed in samadhi. Non-attachment in all its forms. There's a flavor of non-hatred. It's a non-harshness of mind. It's a softness, a loving friendliness in samadhi. 
There's equanimity. There's an ever-evenness. It's described in one way as not going to either extreme, balanced. Here's some others. Tranquility of mind, lightness or agility of heart-mind, flexibility or elasticity of heart-mind, adaptability or wieldiness of heart-mind, proficiency of wholesome deeds. Here's one, proficiency of wholesome deeds. That's an inclination to charity, to generosity, to sharing. Here's another one I like, rectitude of mind. That's a mind that doesn't swerve toward pretense or deceit. Rectitude of mind. Okay, I I think you get the picture. Samadhi is this beautiful conglomeration of wholesomeness. And Buddha Gosa calls 19 of these 34 factors the beautiful universals, and for good reason. Uh, When studying with uh, uh, the Venerable Paul Sayada, he would give us some fun exercises when he deemed that our, the, the samadhi was strong enough to actually parse out these. He'd ask us to discern, to get into a, a, a deep collective state, and then discern each one of these 34 characteristics, feel it deeply, be able to identify it. It might take a couple days or a week, and it was actually quite fun. But in naming them, I just really wanted to point out that uh, there's this beautiful dance of mental factors that comes up during samadhi and the cultivation of tranquility. They're just wonderful. I mean, a quiet mind is a beautiful mind. And a mind settled in such a way is a mind incapable of doing harm. And it and a mind like that is always inclining towards love and compassion, and generosity. There's a, a story I like of the Buddha's early practice that, that illuminates the, the role of tranquility. And of course, as, as you know, the story of the Buddha, he left home, became a wandering ascetic, and, uh, and he was practicing with a group, of, a group of his buddies, and they were doing some really intense, austere, white-knuckle practices. Um, such things as, and I'm not sure the exact number, but you start out and you eat 30 grains of, of rice on day one of the month. Second day, you eat 29. That's all you eat. Then you eat 27, 26, 20. you get down to the last day of the month, you're eating one grain. Then you work it up to 30 grains by the end of the next month. It was said that you could see the Buddha's backbone looking at him from the front. You know, the, his, and his, he and his practice buddies, they'd also bind themselves up into positions so that they couldn't move and would stay awake for days at a time. So, and this was all in the service. They were doing the alls in the service with the, trying to crush desires and, and crush the senses in service of awakening. So he was approaching 
the edge of death. Things were kind of dimming out. And as he was practicing in this austere manner, his mind flashed back to a time as a child. He was 10, 11, 12 years old, something like that. And it was the uh, spring fertility um, celebration in, in his village. And his father was a clan leader. And every spring they had this celebration. And of course, the, the, the family of the clan leader needed to be, you know, you're dressed up, you're paying attention, you smile appropriately. It's like Obama's kids, you know. Occasionally they come out and they're expected to like, you know, show up, be there. Well, this, this celebration was beginning. And notice, well, where's Siddhartha? his name before he became the Buddha, you know, or one of his names that he's been called. And I really can't find him. And so he had wandered off into this uh, rose apple grove and he sat down at the base, he had sat down at the base of the tree and he fell into this deep calm. His body became completely tranquilized. Piti, sukha. The mind, clear joyful, thoughts slowed, disappeared, very deep samadhi. So Siddhartha was remembering this in the midst of his austerity. It dawned on him that maybe he'd gotten off course a little bit with these kind of severe practices. And then, oh yeah, Effort and energy is, is a requirement for awakening. No, make, no mistake about it. But he'd gone over the edge. Striving, pushing the mind and body to the breaking point is not the answer. That an alert but joyful repose was the middle way that he had discovered and now remembered. He'd been there. He knew how to do this. And that that was the sensible path to awakening. So, as the story goes, shortly thereafter, as he had had this reflection and this kind of understanding had reemerged, a, um, a milkmaid was passing by and she happened to have milk and rice and kind of a pudding thing. She offered it and he considered and took it. And that was the beginning of him regaining his strength and it was the, the, from that point on, the tenor of his practice and training changed. It became more balanced with tranquility at the base, a practice that incorporates self-care, not self-mortification. I want to read you the uh, Buddha's description of the first jhana. You, you get a feel for the pleasure, pleasurable nature of the experience. There is a case where a monk, quite withdrawn from sensuality, withdrawn from unskillful qualities, enters and remains in the first jhana. Rapture and pleasure, born from withdrawal, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation, He permeates and pervades, suffuses and fills this very body with the rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal. 
There is nothing of his entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal. Just, and here you get a little look into how to make soap 2,500 years ago. You still make it like this. Just as if a skilled bathman or bathman's apprentice would pour bath powder into a brass basin and knead it together, sprinkling it again and again with water so that his ball of bath powder, saturated, moisture-laden, permeated within and without, would nevertheless not drip. Even so, the monk permeates, suffuses, and fills this very body with the rapture and pleasure born of withdrawal. There is nothing of his entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal. Not too shabby. I mean, that really disabuses anyone who thinks Buddhism is this dark, grim set of practices. Now, it's important to recognize and realize that the cultivation of tranquility is not the end game. It's a necessary foundation for the discovery of the deepest insights. And although it feels wonderful, it is not awakening. Another story of the Buddha, when, uh, when he was practicing, uh, uh, he, one of the people he went to, he, he learned and practiced the first seven jhanas. The first four have numbers. First, second, third, and fourth. The fifth through eighth, they've got names. The fifth is the sphere of unlimited spaciousness. The sixth is the sphere of unlimited consciousness. The seventh is the sphere of no-thingness. So he's studying with this one teacher. It takes him through the first seven. And then the teacher says, ah, now you know it all. Now you're awakened. Now you, you got the whole deal. And the Buddha's kind of like, well, this is very nice, but what about suffering? What about the end of suffering? What, what, what? And, the guy, and, the, and the teacher said, well, this is it. But he said, these are, and the Buddha said, these are just impermanent. These are just mental factors coming into being and then they dissolve out again. You know, but... What about suffering and the end of suffering? The guy says, can't help you. So he goes on to another teacher, and it teaches him one more jhana, the eighth jhana, the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception. It's so subtle. And he says, now you know it. Now you got it all. And he says, well, but what about suffering? Same story. He says, well, I can't help you any further. So he didn't get his main question answered by these two teachers. That didn't happen. But his work there did help him develop a tool that did get that question answered. That powerful, tranquil, collected heart-mind that he developed in practicing. That heart-mind that had had the capacity to penetrate deep into experience that yielded all kinds of powerful insights. This is from the Majjhima Nikaya, a description of the Buddha's mind on the night of his awakening. When his mind was concentrated, purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, 
steady, and attained to imperturbability. He directed it to the true knowledges. And as the Enlightenment story goes, a heart-mind that's that tranquil, that clear, that collected, opened to the deepest penetration and understanding of the very nature of nature. That's where you're headed. That's what you're training toward. That's the possibility. So, tonight we explored samadhi, tranquility, chillaxin. Um, And yes, this practice will reduce stress, anxiety, guaranteed. But that's just the bottom floor. Very worthy in itself, but that's the bottom floor. And you may have periods where you're swamped with challenging energies, difficult emotions, extreme physical and mental pain, and tranquility is not available. So you bring a kindly mindfulness and equanimity whatever you can muster. You reflect on the practice as its own reward, patience, persistence. You attend and befriend, building your capacity to be with all the stuff of life. To learn and wake up, no matter what the conditions. And there may be those times those moments as your practice deepens where the challenging energies relax, the mind is clear, heart open, all manner of wonderment and pleasure are revealed. Great wisdom, great love, they dance this exquisite dance together. So thank you for your attention. Let's sit for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.